Well, good evening to each of you, and God bless you this evening. I have very much enjoyed this service so far. I believe we have worshiped together. We have been challenged together. And we saw some of the very essential things that matter in the kingdom of God. And we want to keep our eyes and mind on those things this week and uh, learn together and be blessed together as we spend these evenings here. It is an honor to be here. It's good to be somewhere close to home this week. Um, I've threatened to rush back and surprise my family one night. It's only about two hours, two hours and a half away. I don't feel like I know this congregation very well. I grew up in Gladys, which is only, what, about an hour north of here. I recognize some faces. I think I was uh, with Norvins in Puerto Rico for a few days. My family remembers them well. And uh, I still enjoy that CD some of you people put out a few years ago. Very worshipful songs we still listen to sometimes. Uh, so I don't know many of you. I'm sure by the end of the week we'll know you better. I have this habit of hearing a name and then forgetting it about 30 seconds later. So bear with that tendency. We'll try to uh, learn to know you this week. I'm looking forward to that. I am from Floyd, Virginia. Uh, my wife and six children are there tonight. We met in Guatemala years ago. Four of our children were born in Guatemala and two more were born here at home. Uh, the two oldest are boys, 18 and 16. The next two are girls. They are 13 and 11. And the last two are boys, and they're 5 and 2. So that's about the range of my family there. I work at Long Island Lumber, which uh, the Floyd branch of that. There's one here in Gladys. That's what I do for a living. Um, we have a little mini farm, about 7.5 acres. We have about 21 sheep and 7 goats and 2 cats and a dog and 2 beehives. And uh, that takes up some time besides the work that we do. It's never easy to leave family. Often it takes a lot of hugs and kisses and tears to get out the door and leave. But I look forward to weeks like this because it's a time for me to just set aside and think and pray and study. And it's a blessing to do that. And Lord willing, my family will be joining me this weekend, at least some of them. So if you're planning for a meal at the end of the week, plan on six or eight instead of one. Hopefully they'll come on Friday uh, later in the week here. A few weeks ago, a co-worker told me that his mother's pastor used to say, a, a big preacher is just a little preacher away from home. And uh, I tended to agree with that. Uh, I'm quite aware that there are people here that study scripture every bit as much as we do up in Floyd, and they're every bit as committed to the Lord as we hope to be and that no scripture probably better than I do, and so you might end the week and say, I didn't learn anything new this week, and I'll grant you that. You probably won't. Um, I'm also keenly aware of the needs at home and are in church, keenly aware of the needs in my own life. And so as I speak this week, I want to just be clear and open with you that I am listening deeply myself to what I am hearing because I need these things and uh, will take them seriously. This last week at home was not the easiest week. We had a school board meeting, a Columbia committee meeting, a members meeting, an excommunication last night. And so I'm getting here this evening feeling like I don't have it all together. Uh, we're starting the week and just praying the Lord will guide and lead as he sees fit. And uh, probably the best thing you can do for me and for these meetings is just pray that God would do what we cannot do. So I'm aware of some of my needs. I don't know your needs. But I do believe that when God's people get together around God's word and the spirit, presence of God's spirit, that's when good things can happen. 
as we seek him together and pour out our hearts together and wait for him to do his work here among us. Up in Floyd, we, uh, we don't use the Sunday school book that a lot of churches use. We study a book of the Bible at a time. And so yesterday we were studying in Hebrews 11, very familiar passage. And it's a passage about description of faith and, and what it is about faith and stories of men and women of faith and what they gave in their quest for the Lord. And that very last verse of chapter 11 says in verse 40, God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Now there are a lot of dedicated people in that passage and none of them are New Testament people. The ones that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 are Old Testament saints that knew much of what it was to serve the Lord, to sacrifice for the Lord, to give themselves up to death in following him. But my question this evening is, what better thing is there? What better thing was reserved for, for what was coming? What was he referring to there? And I believe that the next chapter, we find a reference to that. I'd like to read a few verses out of Hebrews 12 this evening. We'll start in verse 18 and uh, skip to 22 and 24 and then end up in 28. But Hebrews 12, 18 says, For you have not come into a mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the words of a voice, or voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Verse 22 says, But ye are come into Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 28 says this, Therefore, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And I believe tonight that that better thing that's referred to here is the most complete revelation of God's kingdom that men will ever have until Christ comes again. The, the, the full revelation that God meant for men to have was given through Christ and to the generations following those that followed him. Mount Sinai was impressive. The sacrificial system was intricate. The law was detailed. But when Jesus instituted the new covenant and gave it to us to live in and live by, that was the better thing the world was waiting for, and that's something we can be part of. And it's a great blessing to be part of the better things. And sometimes you ask people what the advantages are in the new covenant versus the old covenant. And some people say, well, we're so glad we don't have to do all these sacrifices like they used to do. Well, I am too, but that's sure not all of it. There's things much, much better than that, much deeper than that. And we who have believed and followed Jesus have been ushered into this better covenant, this better thing, and this unshakable kingdom that cannot be moved, and we're part of that. We can uh, own that. We can belong to that. Now, if you're like me, we, we probably learn the basic doctrines of scriptures as individual snippets. We learned about salvation because we needed to be saved from our sins. We learned about heaven as a place we go when we die. We learned about grace. We learned about faith and all these things. But the more we learn, the more we realize these aren't separate issues. <clears throat> They're different parts of the same issue, the same 
teaching, the same uh, encircling realities. And the, uh, tonight's message, I guess, is one of context. It's always hard to know what to start out with. I don't know you. I'm not sure who's here. But, but in this message, I would like to at least uh, provide a framework that puts the rest of our spiritual life into some perspective and links it to what we have in Scripture. And probably everything we could talk about this week and next week and the rest of our lives <coughs> excuse me, could be found somewhere in this framework that we'll discuss here this evening. So we'd like to just do that, paint in broad strokes. Maybe we call this message a kingdom which cannot be moved. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we part of a kingdom like that? Have we understood it like this? Have we understood our calling in it? Have we understood what it stands for? And are we living at the potential that we can live in it? So this kingdom of God, the teaching about the kingdom, was most noticeable in the New Testament, but definitely not absent in the Old Testament. There's a couple of verses in Psalm. Uh, Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. 145.13, The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. And there's, there's hints there about what the kingdom of God is like. It's eternal. It's immense. It's everlasting. It's unlimited in its dominion, its scope. Uh, that's the, just the beginning understanding of the kingdom of God. It's as eternal as God himself is. I'd like to take you to Revelation this evening and look a little bit about the, um, the first moments that John was taken into heaven and his description of what he saw there. Maybe while you're turning to it, if I could beg, borrow, or steal a cup of water here after a little bit, that'd be helpful. I appreciate that. Uh, but let's read a few verses out of Revelation 4. Starting in verse 1, we'll read at least through verse 6. I want you to especially pay attention to the order and arrangement of what John describes and imagine yourself seeing what he saw there in these verses. Verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, <coughs> And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one, that, and one sat on the throne. <coughs> Excuse me. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And so on. It keeps explaining the nature of the things around the throne there. And the reason I want to take you to this passage is because to understand the scope of the kingdom of God, we must understand where it originates from where it has its seat, its foundation, its origin. And I believe that's just what we've seen in the first six verses of Revelation 4. And if you look at this, John describes first things first, second things second, third things third. And the first thing he sees and describes there is a throne which is the center of this picture. He was called into heaven, and he saw a throne in heaven. The first thing John noticed was a throne. 
And every time we see a throne or think of a throne, we understand what it means. It's symbolic. Here is the seat of authority, the right to command, the right to control, the, uh, all the affairs in, of heaven and earth and all the universe are directed from there. That's the center of it. It's a place of judgment. Not only has all things gone forth from it, but all things one day will give account before it. It's where everything began. It's where everything ends. It's the throne of God. It's also the source of life. We didn't see that in this passage, but if you go to Revelation 22, if you, um, if you look where the river of water of life comes from, it says it issues forth from beneath the throne of God. It's not only a place of authority. It's not only a place of judgment. It's also a source of life. Thank you. Down in Guatemala, uh, in the center of Guatemala City, right against the square, there is the palace. And it's a symbolic building now, but in that palace, which we went through one time, there is a room, and in the middle of that room in the floor, there is a stake, or a little projection out of the floor. And from that point, all the roads in Guatemala are measured. And so you go west, you count one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to whatever it goes to. You go east, you start the same way. North, south, it all comes from the same point. That's the center. That's where everything starts from. And that's good up till you get to El Salvador or Mexico or Belize. Then the system stops. It has its limits. Down in Peru, uh, in the town of Cusco, which was the ancient Inca, Inca capital of the world, a bowl-shaped valley there with, with buildings in it up the size of the mountain. A rough place to land an airplane, but they manage it. But years and years ago, the Inca people thought this was the center of the world. Everything started here. Everything sort of revolves around Cusco. It didn't take long for men to figure out that wasn't true. Uh, but here we have the throne in heaven. And here is the center, the axis, the source, the focus of all it is. And that's not going to stop. That's not limited by geography. It's not limited by space. It's not limited by time. This always was and always will be the center of everything that is. And John describes that here in this, in this passage. First thing he saw, first thing he describes. The second thing, one who sat on the throne. No figure. It's interesting. It does not describe a figure sitting there. But it does describe a color. I'm not sure of the significance of that. One sat like unto jasper and the, maybe the red of sardine stone. Um, it describes a rainbow around the throne. Uh, I, I, I envision that sort of a, a green rainbow. That's sort of the color I imagine by reading this verse. Beautiful picture. It's an interesting thought to me what chapter 5 adds to this verse. I'm not going to go and read it, but in chapter 5, it says, In the midst of the throne stood a lamb as it had been slain. And it's interesting to me that ever after that, this throne is referred to as the throne of God and the lamb. So in the very place that's the origin of all things, the very place of judgment and power, there's also a symbol of humility and sacrifice and redemption that is inseparable from the very nature of God himself. 
It's a beautiful picture there. And then it describes around the throne. If you notice, he's going from the throne, the one that sits on the throne, around the throne, ever in larger circles of observation around this place. 24 elders. Some feel this uh, represents the redeemed of the earth. Those that are redeemed, that cast their crowns before the throne, that worship ceaselessly. It talks about four creatures that worship God, moving, crying out around the throne. If you keep on going to chapter 5, you hear the voices of many angels, 10,000 times 10,000 of them, praising God on the throne. Chapter 5, 13, every creature in heaven and in earth and under the earth, in the sea, blessing and praising God. So this is the throne room of heaven, John is seeing. And from it, all the power, all the wisdom, all the glory flows out, and all the praise and the worship flows back. Not just among the 24 elders, not just the four beasts, not just the angels, not just the redeemed in heaven, but everything in every place, from the highest angel to the lowest microbe, John sees casting glory back to him. This is the center of all things. Now, can you imagine the society that must exist around that place? Uh, to have a place where God being all who God is and ruling with the authority he has, what kind of a place that would be like to live in? There's perfect order there because God's character is the law. Everything that God is and that God that exists in his person, his goodness, his love, his mercy, his justice, that is the law of that place, and nothing violates it. There's perfect order. There's perfect love. There's perfect holiness. No need to guard your eyes or your heart or your mind or your thoughts. No need to fear what other men would do. It's a perfect place. God's will is perfectly carried out. There's no resistance there. There's no rebellion there. No selfishness there. God's spirit envelops everything there. Uh, God's provision is perfect there. No hunger, no thirst, no unmet longing because God is all to everyone and provides all for everyone there. And the reason that this holy society around the throne of God can be what it is is because everything there is in perfect harmony with the one on the throne and that makes it heaven uh, from the highest angel to the newest arrival from the Old Testament saints to the New Testament saints everyone is in perfect harmony and agreement with God and uh, you know, if you lived in a place like that you could leave your doors unlocked. You probably already do. Uh, you wouldn't have to fear to leave your, let your children walk on the streets. You wouldn't have to worry about competition between your business and somebody else's business or my garden and your garden or nothing like that at all. It's just perfect uh, coordination. And we call that heaven because it's the absence of evil, the removal of the curse. And Jesus called it the kingdom of heaven, where God is the king, his word is the law. And the only reason that heaven is what it is, because everything that in it, that's in it submits to the lordship of the creator. And that's what makes it such a place. But what John saw is there, and we're, we're here. Uh, heaven is perfect. South Boston, I guess, probably isn't. Uh, neither is Floyd, by the way. 
But is there a bridge between the two? <laughs> That's what interests us tonight. I'd like to take you to, uh, well, I'd like you to think about a couple of questions in context of that, what John saw. What did John the Baptist mean when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? What did he mean by that? What did Jesus mean when he prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And I believe that when Jesus referred to the kingdom of God is like, and the kingdom of God is as, and making comparative statements, he was not talking about what's up there. He's talking about what can happen here in the earth. And I believe that when Jesus came, he did not come to create something new. He came to establish something that already existed. He came to bring a, establish a branch office, as it were, of his home place to start a, uh, an embassy or an extension of uh, what's around the throne of God, the kind of rule and submission and worship that's in heaven, transplant that among men. I believe that's what he came to do. And there's always an inseparable link between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of heaven on earth. There's always that link that exists because it's the same king and the same law and the same spirit and the same goal. And when God came, he did not do it. In, he, it was not a hidden plan. There was much prophecy about that. And one of the most interesting ones comes in Daniel 2, and you may have, you're probably very familiar with this passage. I'd like to refer to that at least and read a couple of verses there. Uh, this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed back in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, without reading a lot, just to remind you what this dream was, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream that he could not remember, and Daniel had to tell him what the dream was and also what the interpretation was. And he said the dream was of this image whose head was gold, whose neck and shoulders were, I haven't read it tonight yet, silver, and then bronze, I believe, and then legs of one thing, and then feet of iron and clay. And, and this image was standing there, and the interpretation of that was Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold was the king of uh, probably more glorious than many that would come after him. And in power, in might, in extent, in, and then ever-lessening kingdoms down to the last kingdoms, which were partially divided. But during the days of these last kings, Daniel said, uh, this, this stone that, from the mountain that was cut out without hands rolled down and hit the feet of the image and crushed it, and the whole image fell and crumbled to nothing, and the stone that came down began to grow until it filled all the earth. And this is the interpretation that Daniel gave in verse 44, I believe it is, of Daniel chapter 2. Uh, in the days of these kings, shall God, the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break to pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Forasmuch as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. Now there's two important observations that I would like us to make tonight as we think about what this dream meant. First of all is this, that what God was going to do was not of human agency or of human determination. It was something that God had determined to do it. And whenever God says it, that's pretty much 
evidence that it will happen. Um, if you choose to be involved with it, great. If you don't, God's not going to fail. If I choose to be with him in that, good. And if I choose to step away from that, God will not be hindered by my lack of cooperation. God has said it and he will do it. In uh, Isaiah, he said, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And when God says it, that pretty well settles it. And so this drives his intentions through to the end. That's the first thing we need to understand. Now, there's the other thing I'd like to point out. The stone that was cut out of the mountain, I, I envision it this way. Imagine a village beside this tall mountain that can never be climbed. It is so high and so distant that no one has been able to climb it and see it. Men are curious about it. They talk about it. They look at it and wish someone could climb it, and it's impossible. But one day, here comes a stone from the very top, all the way down to the valley below and lands beside the village. And there it is. And men walk out to it and touch it and analyze it and look at it and study it. And they look at the mountain, they look at the stone, they touch the stone, they've touched the mountain. And they say, this was from there, and that is now here. And the same essence that this is, is what that is. If you've seen it, you've seen that. Now in Hebrews 9, it says the Old Testament was a pattern of things in the heavenlies. And I very much believe that the new covenant life is a example or a pattern or a, a, at least a small taste of what's happening up there. When God came to establish his kingdom on earth, he meant it to be that. The kingdom of God, when established here, is governed by the same principles. We worship the same Lord. We've received the same spirit. We receive the same laws. The same submission required in heaven is required on earth. The same devotion and worship around the throne, we did it here tonight. At least we hope we did. We pray we did. We want to be part of that. The same authority that rules in heaven is supposed to rule right here. Deuteronomy says something interesting in 11. A couple of verses there. Therefore, speaking of the laws that he was giving men... Shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth." Some people think that speaks of length of days. I like to think of this as quality of life. As we receive what God has given and implement it and live by it and teach it and remember it and apply it in practical ways, something of the very blessing of the presence of God is upon my life and upon the things that I influence and touch. Because God's spirit is here and God's spirit works out and the fruit of him is here. And that's one of Jesus' main subjects in his teaching, how can men live under the authority and blessing of heaven while they live in this earth? That's what he came to show us how to do. And that's the essence of the Christian life, the belief that I no longer really belong to earth. I belong to heaven. 
Uh, his will is my mandate. His, his word is my law. His character is my standard. His uh, thoughts are my worldview. It's a privilege to be counted as a citizen of heaven. I know we live in a corrupt world. I know that what we experience here will never be what it is there, but at least it's a taste of what is there because he has given it to us. We met a man a few years back, my wife did, at a yard sale, and she invited her to revival meetings. We happened to have meetings that week. And so he came and brought his wife, and he came again the next night, and eventually he got a Bible, or at least downloaded an app on his phone he could follow along with, and and he was, I'm not sure how to describe it, touched, grabbed. Uh, we had, he, God had his attention, I believe, that week. And he came to our church meals some. He visited some homes, and he uh, was thinking. But he told me one time, he said, my business is selling things on the Internet. And he did. He would buy things cheap, sell them online, and he had a whole house full of stuff for sale and but he said, I've trained myself to be wary because if everybody out there is trying to take you across and take advantage of you, I've trained myself to be suspicious about people. But he said, I'm here among you and, and you're so trusting. You're so open with each other. You, you don't, there's, there's a lack of, of restraint and distance among you people. And he says, I envy that. And you could say that's just culture. You could say that's just because we've known each other for a long time. But I like to think that it's a result of people living together under the influence and rules of heaven that creates that kind of environment that we can enjoy together. Amen. Uh, not perfect. We have struggles in our church. It's difficult in our relationships sometimes. But the more we can live by these things, the better it gets because God blesses that. The essence of the gospel is not just how can I go to heaven when I die, but how can heaven come to us while we live? here on this earth as we live among men and uh, show them what God is like. Daniel makes a couple of things clear here in this passage. One is that this kingdom is eternal in its nature and its duration. Uh, it will never be taken away. All other kingdoms are torn down and overthrown eventually. Even Rome, that however many centuries of Rome came to an end. You no longer have a Roman Empire. And the people that live there become ruled by other kingdoms and other people. But God's kingdom will always be reserved for that kind of people that love the king and that trust the Lord and that are content to live by his authority in their life. And the kingdom is always reserved for people like that. You know, in, in this world, when nation A goes up against nation B and conquers it, everything that nation B has belongs to nation A. At least that's how it used to work. I guess now nation, B, re, nation A rebuilds nation E and then and goes away again. That's sort of how we tend to work things today. But that's the way it always has worked. This country overcomes that country and everything they have becomes theirs. We sort of expand and take it over. But the kingdom of God is forever out of reach to this concept. If you take a Sasha Krauss or a believer in Iran or in North Korea and persecute him to death, the kingdom of God is still as firmly within his grip as it ever was. It can't be taken away. He'll always belong to it. It will always belong to him. There's nothing to take because it belongs in the heart. 
And we keep it there. As long as we are content to pay the price to belong to the kingdom, no one can take that from us. And this made that clear. Never taken uh, by other men. This kingdom is independent from earthly governments. Now, God would rather have earthly governments than no government. Even a bad government is better than anarchy uh, most times. But the kingdom of God is never beholden to it. It never depends on it, never needs it for support. Uh, Friendly governments can't buy it. Unfriendly governments can't coerce it. Uh, It exists no matter what people around it might think. The Church of Christ... Faith in Christ is probably as strong or stronger in North Korea as it is in North America. Those that believe know what it costs are willing to pay the price to to be in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't matter if Biden or if Sanders wins in South Carolina. To the kingdom of God, it will not make a difference. It does not matter if Trump wins in November or if he loses. The kingdom of God will exist just the same no matter what happens. It will go on because God is in it and God is proposing it and he is behind it. Uh, The kingdom of God transcends earthly governments. This clash throughout history has happened and will happen to the end of time. What happens when men with kingdom consciences refuse to bow to earthly expediencies? As we have these clashes, Daniel faced it. The three Hebrew children faced it. The uh, Anabaptist martyrs faced it. The Amish homeschoolers faced it. The uh, Christian bakers and flower shops face it. And at some point, who knows what will happen. But this clash has existed and will continue. But the ongoing mark of the kingdom of God is that it transcends what human authority says and it will continue to exist and will not be stamped out because men don't like it. God will not fail, no matter when his kingdom is under attack. And no matter whether I'm part of it or not, God will not fail. Jesus clarifies another important point about this kingdom. This kingdom is of the heart, of the spirit, and of the life. It's not about real estate or property. In Luke 17, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you or among you. And I believe history has given the world a wrong view of what, the king, what Christianity was, was like. Uh, much of the world thinks of Christianity as a political entity, the church. Um, it coexists with, it co-taxes, it co-reigns with political entities. And it... Uh, cooperates with them. It's like a state. It's like a state into itself. Something of the church is a building. In every main square in every main town in Guatemala, there's a cathedral. And the people living there, that's the church. I guess here in North America, we're not that far different, are we? The churches have steeples. Churches have benches. Uh, Jesus says, my church is my people. I will live among them. The church is not an authority structure. The church is not a people group. Uh, You hear about the Christians fighting the Kurds and the Christians um, fighting fighting ISIS. That's not the right view of it. Jesus said this is not a kingdom like that. 
This kingdom is spiritual, it's not territorial. This kingdom holds the heart, it does not hold real estate. And because of that, it knows no boundaries. It does not stop at borders. It doesn't stop at cultures. It doesn't stop at languages. It can go through all of those things and keep moving and keep spreading. It does not come with banners. It does not come with noise. We need no weapons. We need no defense. Because wherever there's a man or woman found whose heart is submitted to the king of kings, the kingdom of God is there. Wherever that person goes, the kingdom of God is there. And that's why the borders are stretchy. They expand and they can go throughout all the world. This subject of the kingdom transplanted would be a very long subject to treat. But there's a few realities that we need to accept if we want to be part of this thing. And probably the first of all of these things is simply the fact that that no one enters this kingdom by accident or by birth. Uh, we understand the innocence of the young. We understand that by default, God's creatures belong to him. But to, to enter into the life and enter into the kingdom of God as understanding people, we make choices. I met a, young, a man in Pasaco one time in Guatemala, and I asked him if he was a Christian. He said, a Christian? I grew up on it. I, I nursed on the gospel, he said. Well, that was great if that led him to the point sometime in his life of committing his life to the Lord and saying, I want to follow Jesus. That's great. But no one enters without that step. Someone said, to be born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> and something like that is maybe true. Uh, we value what we get. We value the teaching and the example. But we must make personal choices. We choose to repent of sin in our old life. We choose to lay down our will and submit to his will. We choose to take up his agenda and his desires, even at the expense of our own. And that's the choice that needs to be made. And at the core of this understanding is, is a simple fact that to be part of this kingdom requires a relationship with the king. And that's the core of the whole Christian life. You know, most kings live high above their subjects. I don't know any of them, but just from this, the history that we know about how these things work, the king would be up here, and the subjects would be down there. And the only relationship he would have with them is sort of a, a tax-collecting relationship. Uh, I live from you, and you give to me, and I'll tell you what to do, and you do it. That kind of relationship. But Jesus is different. Jesus requires a relationship in which he gives to us. Not the other way around. He gives to us. In fact, he says in 633 of John, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. In fact, he said to Peter, If I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. In other words, I must do something for you if you want to take part with me. And the only way to be part of this kingdom is to live in this relationship with Jesus. It's not enough to live in the territory. It's not enough to look like his subjects. It's not enough to just obey the laws. We must know the king for ourselves. And from that relationship, life flows. The kind of life we're reading about tonight, from the vine to the branch, uh, the bread of heaven that we need to 
If a man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And we sometimes in our sincerity think, Jesus has done so much for me, what can I now do for him? And we should think that way, but in reality, all that I could do for him is much less important than what he can do for me. Even now, even now, after I've known him for 20 years, what he can do for me is by far more important than what I could do for him. And those that enter the kingdom enter through this relationship and abide in this relationship because we understand that's where, where life comes from. Another thing we need to understand about this kingdom is that this is a very different kingdom. And if we are going to be part of it, we need to just get used to being different than the people around us. It's a very different kingdom. In fact, those in Thessalonica said, when the apostles showed up, they said, those that have turned the world upside down are come here also. And that was quite a reputation. And this is a, an upside down kingdom. is turning things on its head the way things have been thought of and done for so long. Jesus did them differently. And I wish we could understand that, that when we accept Christ, it's not just a way to get our names in the book of life and our sins forgiven. We are accepting a new nation, a new nationality. We're getting new passports, as it were, and we belong to a new thing. And we're not ashamed of that. Uh, I wish the concept of salvation would be just like Rahab and just like Ruth, who knew that to be part of God's people it was a major shift from being a Moabite or being a person from Jericho, something so different to leave and be part of something new and different. But back in the New Testament when Jesus was beginning to teach in Matthew, um, in the Sermon on the Mount he highlights, and some of these were quotes in the Old Testament, some are new things that he's saying. I'd like to just go through and read with you some of the Beatitudes tonight because this highlights to me the kind of people that God is looking for to be part of this kingdom here. And I'd like to read a few of these, starting in verse, one, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know, but when you read these things, I believe Jesus is saying, these are my ideals. This is what I'm looking for. This is the kind of people that I want for my kingdom. If they're not like that when they come, I want to make them like that while they're here. And that's his goal, and that's what he's about. The poor in spirit. When Mr. Trump looks for people for his security team, he doesn't look for people like this. He doesn't look for people like that. He wants strong people, assertive people, people that can push people around, people that uh, are self-assured. That's the kind of people you want. But Jesus said, if you want to be in my kingdom, I want poor in spirit. We had a beggar living on our front porch for about two years. We had a strip of sidewalk in front of our house, and, and he would lived there, sort of a little barrier between the door and the outside because of some flooding issues, and he would stick his clothes and stuff down inside the little place outside one door that we didn't use. He would sleep there every night. We talked. We knew each other well. And every morning, I'd come out and open the little door and look out. It's Marvin. And he said, could I have some coffee, please, and some, an egg, maybe? 
and I'd go to the kitchen and make him some coffee and make him an egg and go out there and he'd say thank you and have breakfast. And next morning, uh, could I have some coffee, please? And every morning. And uh, I admit it got old. In fact, I had to make a little reminder for myself. Put beside the front door. It said, remember that before God, you were a beggar too. And how would it be if every morning we'd be doing that? Lord. I need your help today. Lord, I can't get through it without you. God, without what you can do for me today, I'm, I can't do it. I'm nothing. Jesus said the poor in spirit, and those are the ones that know their needs and know how deeply needy they are. And if we would live like that before God, that's what he would have us to do. They that mourn. Jesus wept, and Jesus looks for eyes to see what he saw, and eyes to weep for what he wept for. And hopefully you can find that in us as we partner with him. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. I saw a t-shirt one time that said, the meek shall inherit nothing. And I know that's sort of what it's like sometimes. But that's not the way it is in his economy. In his economy, it's different. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are those that are not driven by self-preservation. I guess they're just driven by the facts and realities of what's beyond this life. It's not this thing we're holding to and clinging to. It's that kingdom that we're living for. Meekness is not necessarily weakness. You, you don't look at Moses as a weak man, but he was strength under control. There was a few slips in his life, but he had reins, and God had those reins, and God could nudge him and move him, and he did what God wanted him to do, sort of like a horse, ready to run but holding back because it's not time yet. And meekness is just waiting and patience and trust and being under God's control. When God finds a man like that, he'd love to make a leader out of him. He'd love to make a, uh, use him in the kingdom. It's a beautiful verse in Isaiah where it says, a little child shall lead them. And I think among God's people, he wants to find people with that attitude to lead his people. Blessed are the merciful. I guess merciful people are quicker to forgive than to demand, quicker to seek forgiveness than justice. Mercy, I guess, is knowing that justice is on my side, but still acting in the best interest of the other person. Maybe that's one way to describe what mercy is. God loves that quality because it's his quality. That's what he's like. Peacemakers. James says, where does war come from? Well, war comes when two people want the same thing. I want it. You want it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to take it. That's where wars come from. You know where peace comes from? Peace comes from one says, you can have it. Take it. Go ahead. And I saw that in action. I hope you've seen it in action. The person I lived with in Guatemala for a while was the minister there, and he had hired a young lady to help his wife there in the house for a year or so, and, and she had done a good job. In the meantime, her dad had gotten really bitter against the church and left and was making real problems for this man. And so one day he sent someone down with a letter. And in the letter it said, you owe my daughter about $1,000 for back pay and for severance pay and for all this stuff. And if you don't pay up, I'm going to go to the ministry of whatever and try to get you railroaded into paying up. And I knew how hard it was for him because at that point he had gone off mission support. He was trying to make his own living and trying to do a few things to pay his own way. And things were tight. And it was a rough thing for him to face that. But 
It didn't take him long, a few minutes. He said, okay, give me a few days, I'll, I'll try to pay that. And he did. As far as I know, he paid it. Unnecessarily, unreasonable. But to try to win back a bitter deacon, to try to keep peace, whatever shred of peace could be kept, he was willing to do that. And we don't always do things like that, but where the world wants deal makers, God wants peacemakers. And that's part of what we're called to be. And that's what his kingdom is made of. It's beautiful to be part of a kingdom that, that seeks these things. And the reason that we have different values and different foundations and different reasons, different reactions, is because we serve a different king. One that didn't only teach us these things, but lived these things and showed us how it's done. One simple truth I want to remind us of here in conclusion, but it's easy to think in, in a world where evil is so rampant and wrong is so prevalent, uh, is there a place even for the kingdom of God here? Can it even exist? How long can it go before it's impossible to live this way and, and do this thing? Well, the truth, I believe, is found in Jesus' parable of the wheat and the tares. The truth is that good was here first and evil came later. Uh, evil is foreign to this earth. Good is native to this earth. Um, the church may be outnumbered at the moment, mocked and ridiculed at the moment, but, but God's kingdom existed first and it's going to exist long after everything else is gone. Those that serve the king are the original ones. And everything else is simply an imposter that shouldn't be like that. And one day God will restore these things. And uh, one thing especially that's been emphasized to me again in this study, that there is no place for a rebellious heart in the kingdom of God. And by its very nature, this kingdom is, is defined by submission and obedience to God, obedience to the king. And that's what heaven is like. That's why heaven exists the way it does. And God can forgive sins. God can pardon faults and shortcomings. God is merciful to our uh, shortcomings and, and mistakes. But a stubborn will and a hard heart and a rebellious spirit, it can't exist in heaven, and it shouldn't exist here, and that cannot exist in the kingdom of God. And we're called to something better than that. So a simple question, are we part of a kingdom like that? Do we understand it that way? Are we striving for it? Are we giving our life to that? We're going to close with that this evening. I'd like to ask if we could simply stand for a closing prayer, then afterwards our song leader could lead us in several verses of the song. I think it's uh, number 204. And we'll just sing that together, maybe first, second, and third verse, and uh, meditate again on who God is and how... What a wonderful thing it is to be part of his people. Let's stand together.